0: When shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain?
1: When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won.
0: That will be ere the set of sun. Where the place? Upon the heath.
1: There to meet with Macbeth. I come, Grey Malkin. Paddock calls.
0: Anon. Fair Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog, and filthy air. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, spooky, because I have no idea what I just read. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether
1: great literature is actually any good. Welcome to Outside of a Dog. I'm here with the Thane of Thesaurus, Christian
0: Schneider, and I am here with the Lord of Bad Puns, Jonas Hock.
1: And this week we read a play by the Bard, the greatest writer that ever lived, William Shakespeare.
0: But we didn't just read any play. You see, Halloween is almost upon us, and by the time you actually hear this. It is upon us.
1: And we read, well, the brace yourselves, listeners. We read Macbeth. <gasps> There will be discussion of the curse later on. For now, just know we will say Macbeth and Macbeth and Macbeth again and again and again in this review. Uh, We will also spin around the required amount of times and spit and swear and do all the other things that will be required of us. Speaking of spinning around and spitting and swearing we're sitting here with some excellent glasses of scotch uh, old Pulteney in this case we also have some lovely scottish shortbread so we are prepared to read this scottish tragedy but christian what is it actually about
0: it is about a scottish king indeed macbeth a historical figure from the early medieval period in shakespeare's version macbeth starts off as a nobleman who is a loyal servant and general to Duncan, the Scottish king. However, after a battle against a traitorous Scottish lord, Macbeth encounters three witches who tell him that he will not only rise up and become even higher a lord in the Scottish nobility, no, he will also become king.
1: These witches also foretell his companion Banquo that while he will
0: not be king, his sons will be kings. Now, in Macbeth... This instigates a certain train of thought that is supported by his wife, who is maybe even more ambitious than he is. And that train of thought is quite simple. If he should become king, he has to get rid of Duncan. And how to do that? Well, murder is the obvious solution there. And indeed, after some thinking... Some doubting, Macbeth actually murders Duncan, who is a guest in his castle, and blames Duncan's sons, Malcolm and Donalbane, for the deed. There is some chaos, but the other noblemen decide, yes, Macbeth is the perfect successor. So the witch's prophecy becomes true, and Macbeth becomes king of Scotland.
1: Or rather, the tyrant of Scotland. Because in order to ensure his power, he first kills Banquo, or has him killed. He then terrorizes the country, and one after the other, his noblemen abandon him. They flee to England, and there join Malcolm, the oldest son of Duncan, in exile, and plan a reconquest of their beloved Scotland, really, against Macbeth.
0: First among them is MacDuff, who is probably the fiercest rival of Macbeth. But Macbeth is not too afraid of him because the witches prophesy again that he will not be beaten by anyone who is born of women. Of women.
1: Women. Women. Women.
0: Women. Who is born by a woman. By women. However, as prophecies usually turn out, in the end, it's not the way that Macbeth thought it would go. He is killed by Macduff, who was from his mother's womb, untimely ripped, which is just a quite primal term for a Caesarean. And in the end, Malcolm triumphs and becomes the new king of Scotland.
1: Also, Lady Macbeth goes crazy, tries to wash the blood off her hands, which she just imagines to be there. And she, in the end, is implied to have killed herself.
0: So, rather bloody, a rather violent play, although it takes place in historical Scotland, is not one of the histories. It is one of the big four tragedies, together with Hamlet, Othello and King Lear.
1: It is actually the shortest of the tragedies. It's only half as long as Hamlet. Which maybe explains why it's also one of the most popular ones. One of the most performed ones, and one that people have a very easy access to, it seems. Maybe that is because probably the folio version of it, which is the only version we have was based on an edited and cut performance script, which is interesting to me, because that shows that even at Shakespeare's time, people knew, yeah, you have to cut a lot of this.
0: Yeah, I I think in Macbeth, it's quite clear that Macbeth is definitely written for the stage, because there's a lot of spectacle in there. You've got special effects, the witches, witches, magic, battles, and all of that. fights, beheadings, murder, blood, blood, madness. So... That is also, I think, one of the reasons why Macbeth is so popular. It doesn't have, at least at first glance, the long monologues of of Hamlet, the long existential philosophizing, or the long scenes of madness that King Lear has. It's a lot about really action, a kind of just ending that you get in the end. It's very unlike Hamlet and uh, King Lear in that regard, that you might think this is not really a tragedy because, hey, the good guys win, right? But that is one question that we might discuss. Is Macbeth a tragedy and is its eponymous hero a tragic hero or not?
1: Interestingly, my dear restoration friend Samuel Pepys comments on Macbeth, as he does on most Shakespeare plays, and says that he finds it very diverting even though it is a tragedy, which he considers odd. So there is a lot to enjoy in Macbeth, really. Not just the violence and the gore and the action, but also there's the infamous Porter scene, which actually, reading it today, really holds up. That is still funny, the way he describes alcohol provoking the
0: desire and taking away the performance. You think the Porter scene is funny? Hell yeah, it is. Well, it is, but I also think it's one of the darkest scenes in the entire play, actually. Yeah, it's, it's
1: very black humour, very
0: dark, cynical humour. Especially humor. considering where it's put. It's put immediately after the murder of Duncan and before the murder is discovered.
1: Yeah, the king is dead, let's have some hangover jokes about dicks.
0: And any other author or playwright might have misused that scene incredibly. Some sort of ham comic relief. This again shows why Shakespeare is such an incredible writer that he manages to put that scene in there and connect it still to what is going on. This fits the tone of the play perfectly. And I think that is also indicative of Macbeth as a play that I think it's often kind of underestimated, especially compared to Hamlet or Lear. It's often seen as just this kind of Scottish magic romp with a lot of blood and lots of violence. And and I think Macbeth is maybe just as, as good and deep and complex as Hamlet and Lear are, in a different way maybe.
1: You said in one of the previous recordings, before we actually talked about Macbeth, that he is the most Marlowian hero that Shakespeare ever wrote. I've thought a lot about that in recent weeks, because on some levels you're right, on some levels that's true. He's very relentless. He's very violent as well. He's a soldier. Shakespeare's time was the emerging time of armies, of professional armies, where soldier became something that you were, not just something that you did. And Macbeth is all about that. He's a soldier, he's a fighter, and the only way he knows how to deal with a problem is by violence. But then Shakespeare does something different that Marlowe never would have done. He gives him all the long speeches. where Macbeth has doubts, and he has them right from the beginning. Yes, Right when the witches tell him, you will be Thane of Cawdor and you will be king hereafter. And then he's told, now you're Thane of Cawdor. He thinks, that means I have to kill Duncan. But a Marlowian hero would have said, okay, let's go ahead and kill the king. That—that That, that and, is and true. And Macbeth then says, but should I kill the king? Or is that wrong? And then actually says, no, no, no. If destiny wants me to be king, I will become king in time. I don't have to rush it. But then he's drawn back in and he gets involved in this cycle of violence. And that's something very tragic about him as a hero, that he's drawn towards an inevitable consequence by his own deeds and the circumstances working in unison.
0: I totally agree. Um, I think that is an aspect that is more like Hamlet again, this... Thinking about things, overthinking them, a kind of dialectic way of approaching it and yet not coming to a conclusion. But I think where Macbeth is more Marlovian is not just the the violence, the transgressive aspect that he basically not just breaks the law, but he breaks the most holy of laws. The hospitality. Hospitality laws, exactly. He kills Duncan Under his own roof. It's interesting how that
1: prefigured really the most horrible event in early modern Scottish history, the massacre of Glencoe, which our Game of Thrones fans know as one of the inspirations for the Red Wedding, even though it's. SPOILERS! Though actually the massacre of Glencoe was really much, much worse, in my opinion.
0: Because it actually took place? Yeah, exactly. Okay, thanks. And obviously what makes it worse is that Duncan is king. And if you know a little something about Shakespeare's plays where he deals with kingship, with governance, so to say, it's that if something is wrong with the normal, the natural rule in a country, then the entire country basically is, well, fucked. There is a natural order, a natural chain of being. And if that is disturbed, then everything is disturbed. That is also something we can see in Scotland. When Duncan is killed, there are lots of portents, ominous signs that show that supernaturally something is wrong, as well as with the king and then with the kingdom. For example, horses eating each other and the usual prey of birds of prey attacking them in turn. So everything is topsy-turvy, basically, which shows that, yeah, in this case also things are topsy-turvy. And only in the very end, when Malcolm, the righteous heir to the king, is actually king, things are presumed to be normal again. Obviously, it also helps that Malcolm is one of the pre-pre-predecessors of the Stuarts who at that time came kings of England. So Shakespeare again manages to integrate the current situation and brown-nosing the current government quite easily.
1: Though interestingly, it's actually Banquo, who is by the, by the witches, of course, foretold that his sons will be oh, kings. Oh, right, right, He's the head, the spring the, the of, of the Stuart yeah. line. And, and that's why, full disclosure... Two years ago, Christian and I were involved in a production of Macbeth, which I think gives us a real personal connection to the play. I feel that a play that you've staged for you as an actor and for me as a co-director, it gives you a very immediate access to the play and it's it's a feeling that you don't have for any other forms of literature, I think. And there we sort of dealt with that. That Malcolm is king by the end, but there's still Fleance, that son of Banquo. And the very last thing that happened on our stage was Fleance drawing a knife and preparing to kill Malcolm, because the cycle of violence will just. Continue. It will only get
0: worse. That is inherent to the play, apparently. The famous film adaptation by Roman Polanski from the 1970s ends with Donald Ben, the other son of Duncan, visiting the witches. So he's basically preparing for his ambitions to be fulfilled. So something about this play, although it seems to have a rather neat ending, something about this play makes it uneasy to say, yeah, it's a it's tragedy, but it's also a political play where everything turns out right. And I think one element that adds to this uneasiness is certainly the supernatural aspect. I mean, that is often part of Shakespeare's plays. In Hamlet, there's a ghost. Even in Julius Caesar, when the co-conspirators are planning to kill Caesar, signs ominous portents that tell us that, yeah, there's something wrong beyond what is going on in the here and now. And Macbeth is certainly the tragedy, at least, where that is most in the forefront, where the supernatural element is at the very center of the play. And I think that is an aspect that is worth discussing as well, because on the one hand, it adds to this discussion. Is Macbeth really a tragic hero? Because if there is some supernatural element, then that takes away from his kind of responsibility. But maybe all of that is just like in the dagger scene, something that he imagines, some projection of his desire, some fantasy, basically, that he builds up in order to say, Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to be king. The witches foretold it. See? See? Though I think the thinking that
1: outside forces that influence the destiny of the hero, be they supernatural or natural, that that somehow makes the hero less of a tragic hero, is a very modern way of thinking and not a Shakespeare way of thinking. Because, for example, Romeo and Juliet, tragic lovers, obviously, but they are star-crossed. Their destiny is not to be happily United. Destiny was not something weird and outlandish for Shakespeare and his contemporaries. It was a fact of life. It was something that they completely believed in and that they struggled with. Certainly, such as we struggle with the things that we completely believed in, but they still did.
0: Definitely. But again, it's Shakespeare we're talking about and he manages to add a dimension to that which at least makes it easier for us as a modern audience to interpret it as such. Obviously, Shakespeare wouldn't have said, yeah, I'm trying to psychologize Macbeth to such a degree that all of that is just some sort of, I don't know... Figment of his imagination. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But at least Macbeth is a complex character or complex enough that the same doubts that he has regarding the deeds and the philosophy he has, we can also apply that doubt to the supernatural element. But on the other hand... I. Definitely agree, and I think that is very important, that the supernatural element shows us something about the world the play takes place in, that similar maybe to the other Shakespeare play we discussed, The Midsummer Night's Dream, where the element of the fairies introduces some notion about human nature and about human sexuality in that respect mainly. Here the supernatural element tells us something about the world that is again a bit bleak maybe, That in this medieval Scotland, it doesn't really matter who's king or not. That in this world, as you said, the cycle of violence will keep repeating itself. And that also means that there will always be witches. There will always be chaos. There will always be some element that is beyond the grasp of humans. No matter how much they try to rationalize, to... Legitimize to kind of build order, to build kingship, to build a political or social system, there will always be this element of chaos. And the witches themselves are definitely negative figures. They talk about killing people, drowning sailors, killing swine, and uh, killing babies in mother's wombs and so on. But on the other hand, they aren't really characters. They're a force of nature, basically. They are... Very much so. They're there. And the things that Macbeth gets from the witches, just the idea, but everything he does in the end, killing Duncan, getting Bancro killed, wanting to kill Macduff and killing Macduff's family, it's all his decision.
1: But you've already mentioned one of my simultaneously favorite and least favorite parts of the play. You've mentioned on the one hand the supernatural element and also the brown-nosing towards James I, who was probably the king of Scotland and England at the time when the play was first performed. Now, it's a bit dubious. Either it was first performed in 1603 or 1606. I personally think 1606 is more likely because several things in the play seem to refer to the gunpowder treason and plot, which you should remember. For example, Lady Macbeth tells her husband, Seem like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. And after the gunpowder plot, James I had a medal struck, which portrayed a snake in the midst of flowers. So all these allusions are there, they're certainly present, and it becomes a bit ridiculous at times. For example, when Macbeth meets the witches for a second time, and they show him a vision of the future with Banquo and all his issue, who will be kings of Scotland, and then the last one, the eighth one, who's supposed to be James I and sixth, holding a mirror that shows him a long line of kings. Well, actually, just one more who was then beheaded and then another and then his brother and then his daughter and his daughter again. And then the Germans took over. But Shakespeare didn't know all that. So it's really anchored in its time, which I love because I love that time. The Stuarts are my shit. I make a living by pretending to be the husband of Elizabeth Stuart, the, the daughter of King James I. But they annoy even me. A bit in this play as kate beaton said in her shakespeare comic uh, macbeth basically says and then all the kings of scotland were really really good and just got handsomer and handsomer until we get to james the first and james the first says is that really true and shakespeare yeah yeah it is it's so much about pleasing james the first that it's infuriating sometimes. Yes, we get that Macbeth is a bad king because his clothes don't fit him. Yes, we get that it's about witches and James I wrote a book about witches. He was a professional witch hunter, essentially. All the symbolism is not very subtle. And if I'm annoyed by that, I can't imagine how it would be for someone who isn't
0: crazily geeky about these kinds of things. I... I don't know. Yes, you have to read him in his time. And Shakespeare's job, basically, was to sell tickets for the theatre and not to get into too much conflict with the authorities. And that's why the brown-nosing comes into play. Especially because, of course, if it was produced after the gunpowder treason and
1: plot, Shakespeare was kind of in hot water because uh, some of the peripheral figures of the gunpowder plot were kind of people who his family knew as well. So he was in a bit of trouble,
0: maybe. Still, I think that play transcends that for example again macbeth as a character he is the bad guy he is the villain he is the one destroying the natural order and he's the one who has to be killed in the end but if shakespeare really wanted to get that across in a different way he could have just called this the i don't know the history of malcolm the glorious king of scotland it's not it's the tragedy of Macbeth. And Macbeth is a tragic hero. He is portrayed as someone who, despite his villainous nature, there are many elements, especially elements that come across in the monologues, that show us that Macbeth is maybe a figure that is much closer to us he is maybe the most modern figure in this primeval society he, uh, he,
1: let me finish
0: Hamlet. No, no no i'm talking about scotland in this case in this oh, okay play, okay yeah. in this play <laughs> in this play okay macbeth is the one who actually thinks about things he's not just following rules of loyalty and honor oh. and honor and kinship and all that He thinks about his own position in the world. Uh, He's the Wolf of Scotland, you could say. Yeah, that is actually not just a stupid pun. Thank you, Eunice. Yay, sometimes I make a worthwhile contribution to a podcast. And, I mean, one of the most amazing pieces that Shakespeare has ever written. The great Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow... Monologue by Mitchell. She
1: should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to date. To the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. During my national service, when I was really bored, really depressed, and really frustrated, I learned this soliloquy by heart whilst washing the dishes in the clinic where I worked. That was the only thing that kept me sane, essentially.
0: (laughs) What Jonas didn't learn was to speak that soliloquy in a less melodramatic tone. But I was fucking 19! What do you expect? But nevertheless, this is some hardcore
1: nihilist shit (laughs) it is And and that's why i identified with it as a 19 year old idiot in my gap year essentially
0: and you might say that this is something shakespeare criticizes and says oh yeah the villain he's a nihilist so he has to be punished because he doesn't believe in anything but on the other hand so far macbeth has had a quite rational if again villainous negative train of thought so when he comes to that conclusion not only 19-year-olds might say, hang on, this, this Macbeth guy has the right view, at least, again, on the world as Shakespeare portrays it. So, I think Macbeth is a more complex figure than just the straw villain for uh, the stewards to kind of say, oh yeah, we're much better than that. Again, I think It is actually a good tragedy.
1: Yeah, and so far we've only talked about male Macbeth. There's Lady Macbeth as well. A fascinating character, really fascinating character. I think it took 200 years after Shakespeare until such complex female characters entered the stage of England again. But Shakespeare was incredibly good at writing women, considering that no women were allowed on his stage. He writes Lady Macbeth as this really interesting villainous figure. But anyone who's ever done any sort of performance, be it amateur dramatics such as we do or be it professional actors, will confirm to you, playing villains is so much more fun. I mean, in our Macbeth production, you played Seward and the second murderer. Which one was more fun? Seward. Oh, I'm shit. sorry. <laughs> Even though as Seward, you had to deliver that really awful speech towards the end about Oh, it's good that my son died, because he died a hero's death.
0: Yeah, but at least I had something of a character there. Um. Anyways, uh, Lady
1: Macbeth. She is a villain, but she's such a great character. She has some of the best speeches. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts unsex me here. So it's very interesting for people who are interested in early modern perceptions of gender as well. The way that she's really complicit in the murder that her husband commits, and she actually takes the daggers back to the chamber and smears the faces of the attendants with blood so that they will be the suspects in the murder. She's evil, of course, but then she goes mad. And it happens off stage. We don't get a long speech from her delving into her madness, but we get her just being mad. And maybe that's even stronger because that way we're simply confronted with her. We don't get an insight into her thinking like we do with her husband, but it's so effective and it's so iconic as well. That's why she has been the feature
0: of so many portraits of so many paintings. I think that if Lady Macbeth would just go mad, that would be actually kind of bland, because a madness, you might call it more effective. I say it's a neat way of getting her out of the picture. Because that is kind of a letdown. I think the madness only works if you see the complexity of Lady Macbeth's portrayal before the murders, or before all goes wrong. You do, though! But she has to force herself. She has to exactly. call on evil spirits exactly. to commit the murder,
1: or to get her husband to commit the murder.
0: Lady Macbeth is so often misrepresented, and is played in a wrong way often, that she's considered to be the the true villain of the piece, that she She's the one who instigates the whole thing, who basically forces Macbeth to commit the murders. And that is so wrong. She kind that of does. so wrong. She, no. she kind of does. No, 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 but no. She's no. a Machiavellian character. She's a vice figure. No. She's a, no she's she not. seduces she him. She is not. She is not. What she is she
1: then? Is, is she a little Ophelia
0: who says, no. oh, no, no definitely oh my God, not? That husband is so There's evil. something in between that. Like is real that? women.
1: Oh, so does she have curves? Oh, definitely. Especially if she's played Barry.
0: Marion Cotillard, French hat Yeah, we discussed that. Oh, yeah, we did that. No, actually, that is an interesting aspect. Lady Macbeth says, unsex me, but you get the feeling that the Macbeths are actually kind of a happy couple.
1: Yeah, also, what happened to that child? I wonder, because she says, I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. But that child is not present. That is a real tragic backstory that's just hinted at, um, that. so
0: effective. In historical terms, she was married before, and she has a grown-up son from that first marriage. You're kind of a spoilsport right now. I'm sorry. I'm trying to think about the character, not the historical figure. But indeed, yes. If you just look at the text, that is isn't really interesting fact. And I think the Macbeths only work in the plural as a team. So neither of them is a villain who kind of drags the other one into that thing. Macbeth has criminal energy, but he also overthinks things. Lady Macbeth has ambition. She's much more brash, much more energetic. But on the other hand, she might have more of a sense for morals. I mean, that famous quote about the old man having so much blood in him. That is her realizing how many crimes she has helped committing. You don't hear something like that from Macbeth. The further Macbeth delves into his role as a villain, the more bitter he becomes, but also the more accepting. He owns that role in the end. He says, yeah, bring it on. Everything is pointless. Lady Macbeth certainly is more of a firehead. She is the one who has these great images that you mentioned. She also says that if she were forced to do it, she'd rip her baby from her breast and dash its brains out. And that is an incredible image, but there are the cracks in that image of her as the villainess. She's more words but in the end it's Macbeth who murders Duncan and she's kind of glad that he does it and not that she doesn't have to do it.
1: So in a way they start at opposite ends and then meet and end up on opposite ends again. They go through the same development just in different directions.
0: And as I said I think seem to have kind of a happy relationship. They're definitely sensual you can really imagine them having oh some, yeah having some sweet sweet post battle sex
1: <laughs>
0: they are the true characters in a world of thanes and noblemen who are kind of interchangeable and when no one else not even macduff who's this kind of great nemesis of macbeth really has that much of a, of a character, character arc or any kind of development.
1: Maybe that shows that the version of Macbeth that we have really is based on a performance script, on a prompt script that was already cut for performance. Because in performances, you sometimes have to cut the subtleties of some of the characters and you emphasize certain other characters. And apparently in the production that we have preserved for eternity now, they really wanted to focus it on the Macbeths which I understand. They seem to be really interesting. I've promised people to talk a bit about the curse. Um, Of course the curse is ridiculous. There aren't actually witches. Witches didn't actually curse the play, so when you speak its name, Macbeth, you're not going to have bad luck. Though, The production that we did two years ago kind of confirms the idea of the curse. Let's just say it was very chaotic. In our first performance, Macbeth and Macduff tore down a curtain whilst fighting, and Macbeth had a bloody wound on his head afterwards, which he just kept because it was awesome. And also in the last production, Macduff actually dislocated his shoulder, because they deviated from the choreography that I had given them. So to all the actors who will perform in my version of The Tempest next year, stick to what I tell you to do, otherwise you will receive bodily harm. Literally. So, our production of Macbeth
0: was certainly troubled,
1: but it was also immense fun, wasn't it?
0: It is recipe for disaster, probably, because you are inclined to add special effects and battle effects and all that, and that is just perfect way for something to go wrong on a theatre stage. But on the other hand, I also think this is a play that has certain ambiguities, more so than other Shakespeare plays. It's a darker play in many respects. I think despite its popularity, the fact that it's still one of the most popular Shakespeare plays nowadays, I think there is something that if you really, as you said, if you really connect to the play, if you really delve into it, it might be fun playing with that, but it's also something... uh, I don't know, more raw or dark than with other plays.
1: But when we come to whether or not you should read this, especially this rawness and this darkness, is why I say yes, read this play it's very short it's only going to take you an afternoon or maybe two but you're going to enjoy it the only dispensable part that could be cut is all the shit with Hecate and the witches but that wasn't actually by shakespeare probably that was probably added by middleton so just ignore that just read it for the sheer pleasure of reading one of shakespeare's greatest tragedies
0: i agree i would even say don't read this once read this twice or Three times. Read it the first time just for the fun and the action and a plot that really goes to its bitter end, and then read it a second time or a third time for the subtleties behind the violence and the spectacle. That Macbeth is a much more fascinating character than you might think, that Lady Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's most amazing and fascinating female characters, and that the world is. Many respects, the darkest, the bleakest version of Shakespearean stage land that you could imagine. So yeah, definitely Macbeth is a must. But if you don't want to read Macbeth, we—it's
1: boring. Uh oh, it's a 400 euro pay.
0: What? 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 Why? What? what, what oh, wait, eh? Yeah, do not, And
1: uh, uh, yeah. it's in old English. Sorry, but I get really annoyed by people who say that Shakespeare is inapproachable. And just to reiterate, and don't cut this, Christian. Anyone who questions whether or not Shakespeare, the son of a glover from Stratford-upon-Avon, wrote the plays attributed to him. Fuck you. You are an elitist bastard. So if you don't want to read Macbeth, if you want other recommendations, what do we have on offer, Christian?
0: I could have gone into the direction of theatre, I could have gone into the direction of horror or supernatural, I could have gone into the direction of political plays, and then I thought, well, maybe there is something that includes all three of those aspects, like Macbeth does. And actually, there is a play by Martin McDonough, the Irish playwright and film director by now called The Pillow Man and it is an entirely different play from Macbeth. It is also about the horrors of tyranny, about the horrors of a political system but also personal horrors. It is much more psychological at least on a surface level but it goes in a similar direction with asking these questions of is power always something horrible? Is Fiction destined to add horrible things to that. The Pillow Man is my recommendation.
1: I'm actually going to stay within Shakespeare for my recommendation. I have two. My first recommendation is the Michael Fassbender Macbeth movie. No, I haven't seen it. Exactly,
0: I wanted to mention that.
1: I haven't seen it because it only comes out here on the 29th of October and we're recording on the 26th. And I probably will not even have seen it by the time that you hear this, because Germany is a fucking cultural wasteland where they do not show this in the original language on the day that it comes out. Sorry, I'm just really emotional about this. But still, from the trailers, it looks amazing. Michael Fassbender, of course, is one of the best actors of our generation, and him playing Macbeth is a dream come true. The movie looks awesome and I want to see it so badly, so I'm going to recommend it without having seen it. But I have a second recommendation, of course, in case that the movie is actually bad, I'm sure Christian will delete them as appropriate. Or maybe he will not. (laughs) If you could see his smile right now, you would know he will not. My second recommendation is another Shakespeare play, which is actually basically exactly the same as Macbeth, just with a different main character and without Lady Macbeth. It's Richard III, which was written over a decade before Macbeth was, but it's basically the same story. A guy becomes king by illicit means and in the end he loses a battle and is killed. It's also about the change from one dynasty, the Plantagenets in this case, to another, the Tudors rather than the Stuarts. Basically it's the same story. But the main character is different, whereas Macbeth is a brutal guy, a soldier, a man who kills to get what he wants. Richard III is different. He's a Machiavellian character. He's a guy who talks around people. He's a guy who tells the audience at the very beginning, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill my older brother. Then I'm going to kill his sons. And then when my oldest brother dies, I'm going to be king and you love him you like him because he is so fucking charming it's really similar to macbeth but as
0: different as it could be it's a great companion piece so one great recommendation and two kind of social recommendations anyway if you had enough of all that shakespeare larry da daddy da why not recommend something else to us because you can actually connect to us you can Follow us on iTunes and rate us there. You can follow us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. You can like us on Facebook at Outside of a Cast. You can also write us an email, Outside of a at gmail.com. And whilst you're at iTunes subscribing to our
1: podcast, why don't rate us there and also write a review? Seriously, we have one review so far, and it's not particularly flattering, and it's from March now, it's October. We would really appreciate some new ones, please! Or if not, fuck you you can write that in your review. Yeah, please just write a review that says, fuck you. That should take maybe two seconds out of your day, and it should be possible for every one of our listeners. But give us five stars, nevertheless. Yeah, five stars, fuck you. That's my challenge to all of you listeners. All of you who I know, all of you who I don't know, especially, go to iTunes right now and rate us five stars and write, fuck you. That would be so great. (laughs) But Christian, that was our Halloween episode. Halloween is over. What are we going to read next?
0: Why would you say that Halloween is over? The horror has just begun. Oh no! Because what we're going to read is one of the classics of horror literature. By none other than Howard Phillips Lovecraft. At the Mountains of Madness. And fuck you, Jonas. It's not the short one. No! Happy Halloween.
1: Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit
0: outsideofadogcast.com. And you know, there's elderberry f- bushes, elderberry bushes are a perfect analogy there.
1: Uh, I think elderberries is a good euphemism for uh, old geezers' testicles. His elderberries. Why? I've never been to Iceland. I've never met any geezers. What? <laughs> but there's a lot of geezers in Iceland. End
0: gag right there I would like to disagree (laughs) But I probably will put it
1: there
0: Please cut this
1: Because otherwise the Irish will hunt me down That's what they do